This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson, and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property, plenty happening in the world of real estate at the moment, a little bit happening locally, plenty happening nationally, and we'll just have a little bit of a digest of the stories of the week here on Property Matters. Starting up is a story here by Susan Edmonds of stuff.co.nz. It says, the Reserve Bank's warning of pain for first home buyers. So it's talking about recent first home buyers. So the Reserve Bank has recently uh, just raised the cash rate and 50 basis points, or the official cash rate, I should say. And it's uh, up to a level now not seen since 2016. And the bank signalled that it expects to continue to push higher to a peak of about 4% this time next year. It's now predicting a faster increase and higher peak than of previous forecasts. Then it expects the rate to start falling again towards the end of 2024. So in its monetary policy statement, the bank noted that mortgage rates had not yet risen to a point that would cause borrowers difficulty paying their mortgages. Most were starting from a strong position. It said that during 2021, major banks had tested new borrowers' ability to service mortgages at the rates of 55 to 6.5%. Therefore, mortgage rates up to these levels should result in relatively few borrowers having difficulty paying their mortgages, and as a result, the reduction in aggregate household spending growth is expected to evolve as it has during previous monetary policy tightening cycles. So the big banks are now advertising one-year rates uh, that are up above uh, 5%. The Reserve Bank said its current cash rate prediction would take the one- and two-year fixed mortgage rates over 6% in the next year. So if mortgage rates rise as forecast, then there is a risk that a noticeable number of households that borrowed for the first time in 2021 will find it difficult to pay their mortgages and cover all their usual expenses. This is because the 6% mortgage rate is close to the level at which borrowers were tested during the COVID-19 period. There is a risk that these borrowers will need to cut back spending by more than currently assumed to meet their higher debt servicing costs. So when you borrow from the bank, when you borrow a mortgage, uh, you lend at a certain rate, but they allow, when they're doing their calculations, as to whether they lend to you or not, an extra couple of percentage points so that if the market does turn, you're not going to be in too much trouble. So the May Reserve Bank Financial Stability Report noted that low interest rates during COVID-19 had led to an increase in borrowing at higher debt-to-income ratios, that is, the debt as multiples of people's income. In 2021, almost 10% of first-home buyer lending had been for more than six times the borrower's annual income with a deposit of less than 20%. Another 25% of first-home lending had been more than six times the borrower's annual income with a deposit of less than 30%. So earlier in the year, the Reserve Bank said that interest rates of 6% would put 50% of recent first home buyers under serviceability stress. So we're going to have to see where that goes. But Infometrics economist Brad Olson said the Reserve Bank was sending a clear signal that households and businesses would need to adjust their spending behaviour. And he forecast two 50 basis points increases in July and August. 
Now I just want to find a follow-on article here. Yes, I've got that here. This is an article from Tom Puller-Strecker on stuff.co.nz. It says, Or agrees government spending feeding inflation and raising OCR risks recession. So there was a recent uh, select committee hearing where the Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr has conceded that the government's spending is feeding short-term inflation and that one of the risks of raising interest rates is that it could force a recession. But he qualified those comments at a select committee hearing by saying that the Reserve Bank did not expect a recession and that the government's longer-term spending plans should reduce demand in the economy. So according to this article, the Reserve Bank surprised economists on Wednesday by forecasting in a hawkish monetary policy that the official cash rate would rise to about 4% by the middle of next year. As was much more expected, it also raised the OCR by the 50 basis points in a bid to try and drive down inflation. Now inflation's actually at a 31-year high of 6.9%. That's the general cost of living increases, if you like. National Party finance spokesperson Nicola Willis said, has laid some of the blame for high inflation and rising interest rates at the government's door, accusing it of putting more fuel on the fire through its spending plans, and that includes the $350 cost of living payment for low and middle income wage earners, which was announced at the budget. On Wednesday, or put that in context to say that actually that is really just a, a, a tiny amount in the big scheme of things. So we'll just have to see where, where things go, but it's certainly the, the government's uh, spending that is causing things to, to increase there. I don't know what, what, uh, what a solution is, but uh, there's smarter people than me in this world. One thing they did do recently, the government, was to increase the new price caps for first home buyers. So this is to do with the first home grants, which is a grant for first home buyers, provided the properties they're buying are eligible and meet certain criteria. So effectively more properties will become available to first home buyers after the price caps on the first home grants have been lifted in the budget. However, this article says here's what first home buyers can get for the new price cap. So is it really going to make much of a difference? I'd argue virtually none at all because they haven't really lifted the caps very far at all. So they... Last week, the government announced that the first that the price caps for first home loans will be removed completely from June first, which is probably a good idea, but lifted the first home grants from May the nineteenth. It's estimated that the cap changes mean about seven thousand more people will be eligible for grants, and the grants provide up to ten thousand dollars per buyer if they meet KiwiSaver criteria and withdraw from their KiwiSaver funds for a first home. So, if you're a couple, that's twenty thousand dollars. It's not a lot of money but I guess every bit helps. Real Estate Institute Chief Executive Jen Baird said the grant and loan changes better reflect the reality of the market and will be welcome news for weary first-home buyers. The change will give them confidence to reconsider their opportunities, she says, but navigating tighter lending criteria as well as increasing inflation, global economic uncertainty and rising interest rates will remain a challenge for some buyers. So it doesn't really change a huge amount, uh, according to First Home Buyer Club Director Leslie Harris. He says it doesn't change materially anything much for most people. That's because the grants are only $10,000 and people still need to come up with deposits of over 100000 There are a few more people that benefit from them, but which is great, but for most the struggle remains because it's hard to save the deposit necessary. 
And mortgage brokers say the fact income caps remain unchanged could mean it will be hard for people to access the grants. People must earn less than 95000 as a single person or less than 150000 uh, as a couple to qualify. So we'll just have to see where that goes. So the grant caps have uh, gone up in most areas. The article goes on to talk about that. It doesn't talk much about uh, our region, although I believe, and don't quote me on this, I believe it's gone up to 500000 As If you buy a property uh, under that, then you can uh, get that $10,000. So it'll be good if the government then goes on and does indeed change uh, that upper limit. So this question posed by Susan Edmonds on stuff.co.nz, is investing in property still a valid bet? So we're changing our, putting our hat on, our investor hat on now. And CoreLogic Head of Research Nick Goodall outlines the looming factors that could sink house prices and how important the next election will be. With house prices falling, new rules to contend with and lending harder to come by, you might imagine that property investors would be pulling back from purchasing properties. But while there has been an undeniable shift in the market, commentators say some investors are still active and there are opportunities if you know where to look for them. So what is the state of the property investment market and where would a would-be investor start? In terms of the challenges, the challenges for would-be landlords are obvious and mounting. Economist Benji Patterson said the environment was a very challenging one for anyone looking to buy a residential property as an investment. There are a few aspects of the current environment that will push all but the bravest and most long-term investors out of investing and buying a rental in most parts of the country, and these include falling house prices, tighter credit conditions and regulatory changes. Patterson said many investors had relied on capital appreciation for a long time, but now the house prices were beginning to fall in most places, down 5 or 6% so far from the peak, and forecast to drop up to 20% once adjusted for inflation. That was no longer a guaranteed strategy. And again, it does depend a little bit on where you live and how long you hold the property for, of course, as to how those recover. Benji Patterson says, instead, to make a property unit's keep, an investor will need to find something where they can add significant value or achieve a particularly strong rental yield, he said. The problem is, though, that these types of opportunities are far and few between. Many investors will choose to sit on the sides and wait for better buying opportunities to appear down the track. He said people who did not want to act could find access to money a challenge. Banks are allowed to lend only 5% of new loans to investors with equity or deposit of less than 40%. Rising interest rates also put pressure on people's ability to service the loans. People who are able to tick the money box would then have to work out how to navigate the new rules. And that's included the healthy homes compliance limits on how often rents can be reviewed, the removal of tax deductibility on home loan interest payments. So the government is phasing out investors' ability to offset their home loan interest costs against rent received to reduce their tax bills. It has been estimated that this will mean new investors pay $2,700 more tax this year than those who bought before the new rules took effect. Although many of these factors are ultimately designed to protect tenants, there is a risk that that at the margins they leave some investors shying away from rentals. The problem with this is that such behaviour could tighten the pool of rental houses available at present and prospective renters would find it more challenging to access housing they can afford. This would be a perverse outcome in the short term at a time when other inflationary pressures are already squeezing budgets out of many households. Investor Graham Fowler said... 
Rising interest rates were a big concern for investors who seemed to be the most affected segment of the weakening market. An agent we deal with regularly told me last week that he hasn't had any inquiries for the whole of this year from an investor wanting to buy. Up until the end of last year, he'd get several people calling him each week wanting to buy an investment property. So let's look now at the opportunities for investors. Well, the data shows us that investors are still buying, and the Reserve Bank data shows that there was $1.279 billion in lending to investors in March, compared to 881 in January and 1.3 billion almost identical in March 2020 it was down from the 2.28 billion in March 2021 just as loan to value restrictions that were lifted due to covid were reinstated Nick Goodall, head of research property firm CoreLogic said there was a consistent level of investment activity happening in the market people are still finding ways to make it work he says Goodall said that while yields, the amount of rent paid in comparison to the purchase price of properties, were low, rents were rising. Barford and Thompson data shows that the rent on a typical three-bedroom property managed by its agents increased by between 1.5% and 4.5% in the year to March. Those of you who listen to the show regularly will know also that in a similar time period, the rents in Manawatu went up 14%. So Goodall said although prices were softening, a strong labour market was likely to put a floor under them and that made investing in areas of strong local economies a better option. Some were also seeing opportunities in areas that could be rejuvenated by the borders opening like central Auckland for example as the international students and travellers return because that would increase demand for apartments. Going back to what he was saying there about the uh, strong labour market etc and strong local economies, that's where Manawatu is and uh, Manawatu would continue, I believe, to be a good place to invest for quite a number of years to come due to the massive amount of projects that are going on here. So Goodall said that many property investors still talked about doing up properties as a way to add value, which it definitely is. So the next part of this article asks, when is the best time to buy? Ed McKnight, economist at Opie's Partners, said a falling market often provided the best opportunities for investment. He said he would smile when he saw people commenting on businesses' Facebook posts saying it was a bad time to buy. The opportunity is in the downward phase, he says. When things bottom out or start to recover, people are more optimistic and there's not as much incentive to accept lower prices. He said he could see opportunities in two clear areas, new builds and significant renovations. Investors were able to negotiate with developers to lower their prices significantly, he said, McKnight said he'd seen movement of up to 15% already. According to him, he says that you can negotiate hard with developers as their phones aren't ringing right now. And while owner-occupiers might be happy to sit and wait months or longer for the right price, developers were in the business of selling a property and had more incentive to be flexible. People who bought new builds could also be able to continue to use their home loan interest costs to reduce their tax bills. He said the rules also allowed for a property that was converted into two separate dwellings to be considered two new builds. That's uh, pretty good as well. And he said there's opportunity, particularly in Auckland or Hamilton, to buy a property at a cheaper price than it might have been possible six months ago and to renovate it into a home and income, he said. It's a complex process. It's not just as easy as knocking up a wall. You need code compliance certificate, but it's a big opportunity. So really the... 
that's just a few comments there on, on generally uh, investors in the marketplace. So look for places that you can do up or add on to as being the ones that will possibly give you the best uh, results at the moment. If you're looking medium to long term though, uh, capital growth tends to work very well and the value of properties tends to, in this region, double every 10 years or so, uh, has been more uh, faster than that recently. So we're just going to have a little break now, go to a little bit of music, and then we'll come back with a bit more on the market. This is Bob Marley and the Whalers with Redemption Song. Ships. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit, but my hand was made strong by the end of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Redemption songs Yourselves from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our mind. Oh, have no fear for atomic energy, cause none of them are gonna stop at the time. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Yes, some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever had Redemption songs All I ever had 
redemption songs These songs of freedom Songs of freedom And that was Bob Marley and the Whalers with Redemption Song. You're listening to Property Matters here on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio. I'm Greg Watson. Uh, lovely to have your company here. We were talking about the market. We'll just carry on a little bit there. And you may be noticing that we are seeing a lot more prices listed on house listings. And this is an article from Stuff by Miriam Bell. She says auctions have fallen out of favour as the housing market cools and that has led to resurgence in prices, resurgence in, on sales adverts, agents say. So there were 721 properties sold at auction nationwide in April and that's the, uh, according to the latest Real Estate Institute figures, and that's only 14.8% of all sales and that's a significant drop from the same time last year when it was 29.8, so it's halved. Real Estate Institute Chief Executive Jen Baird says that in a slower market there tends to be a trend away from auctions. A new Trade Me analysis of listings by sale method supports us. It shows 57% of listings nationwide included the seller's price expectations in April. And that was up 46% or from 46% at the same time last year. So the move away from auctions or tenders to a more price transparent method such as inquiries over or asking price was evident, uh, particularly in the three main centres as prices uh, have been dropping there a bit. Now, I don't know about you, but as a buyer, I always like to see a bit of an indication of a price on a property anyway because it's really hard to figure out what something's worth and I don't know about you, but I would just tend to flick on to the next ad if I didn't really know (laughs) what a property was being advertised for. So following up just on articles we've had in the last couple of weeks about the jib shortage, this article by Jonathan Killick on stuff.co.nz, unable to source jib here, frustrated builders import plasterboard from China. So Kiwi builders have been forced to look offshore to source desperately needed plasterboard as local retailers have run out of stock amid the national construction materials shortage. A sales spokesperson for Trussus, a Beijing-based firm, claimed it had seen a significant increase in interest from buyers in New Zealand after builders were unable to source jibboard locally. The Chinese company is able to export the standard-sized plasterboard sheets for $21 a sheet. That includes shipping, manufacturing and taxes. And because New Zealand has a free trade agreement with China, there are no duty costs imposed on importing the plasterboard from there. So jib plasterboard, which is manufactured by flexure subsidiary Woodenstone Warboards, is retailing for about $30 before trade discounts prior to the shortage. Truss's spokesperson said its plasterboard had been verified to meet New Zealand building code standards and provided a test certificate from Swiss verification firm SGS. However, the Ministry of Building Innovation and Employment and Auckland Council were unable to verify the authenticity of the certificate. An Auckland Council spokesperson said the best way for a builder to ensure imported plasterboard could be approved for use was to provide evidence of compliance with the building code. This could be in the form of an appraisal from a New Zealand testing body or testing results from an accredited test facility. They said that due to the material shortage it had seen an increase in product substitutions including replacement of jib board. A lot of plasterboard substitution requests are assessed as minor variations by building inspectors. However, we had have instances 
where substituted products were non-compliant with building code requirements, which resulted in costly deconstruction and time delays. And in the meanwhile, New Zealand builders have been paying about six times the retail price for jib plasterboard on TradeMe because they're unable to find it in store. So some, uh, in some areas, uh, Flex, your building subsidiary placemakes, appears to have removed its online lif- listings for jib board altogether. Um, and it's interesting to see what's going on there. Flexure Building had previously said, though, and I've got a phone going in the background. There we are. Sorry about that. Uh, Flexure Building had uh, previously said that it would significantly increase production of jib board once it opened the new $400 million factory in the Bay of Plenty in June of next year. So that'll be fantastic uh, to see if that will help. And that's about all we've got time for this week. So thanks very much for listening in and uh, I look forward to catching up with you in a week's time. It's here on mpr.nz. Remember, you can Google Greg Watson, Property Matters, and you can also find this wherever all good podcasts are found or on mpr.nz. See you next week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.